with me again in your copy of God's Word this morning to the book of Matthew. Our preaching text can be found on page 821, Matthew's Gospel, reading verses, uh, chapter 16, excuse me, uh, verses 1 uh, to 12. I think this is the fourth time in five sermons uh, we're going to cover the theme of bread. Jesus just keeps coming back to this, uh, this theme and this reminder. Uh, this time it has a bit of a different uh, twist to it. You'll remember where we've been the last couple of weeks. Uh, Jesus, maybe, I think about three sermons ago, uh, fed the 5,000 on the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, He then traveled to the other side. Uh, I'm sorry, he healed, sorry, I got my my order reversed. He was in the Galilee region, the Jewish region in the first feeding. Then he traveled to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, to the more Gentile region, where he repeated that same healing Um, those same healings, and he repeated the same miracle uh, of feeding uh, thousands of people. He's left that region, and he's come back at the end of chapter 15, uh, back to the region where the Jewish people are. And we're going to see the type of greeting he gets before he gets back on a boat, and he goes somewhere else again. We sort of need a map for these chapters in the middle of the gospel. He's, he's back and forth all the time around uh, the Sea of Galilee. But I want you to see, after he's done miraculous healing and feeding, he comes back amongst his own people. What kind of reception does he get? Matthew 16, beginning at verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening... You say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it amongst themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus answered them and said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets were gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The grass withers, the flower fades. Lord of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are often as dull of hearing as these disciples How often do we miss what is so clear before us in your word? I pray, O oh God, in these next few moments that you would speak in mighty and powerful ways. 
and you would break down whatever barrier that is in our ears or in our hearts to your word. And we would hear it and we would believe it and we would hear of your son and we would believe in him this hour for it is in his name that we pray. Amen. I wonder if you can join me in a moment of thinking back about your time as a kid in school and what was the hardest subject for you? What was that class that made you so upset? That class that made you so nervous? That class that no matter how hard you tried, you couldn't figure any of it out? I guess this shouldn't surprise you since I'm a preacher, but for me that was math. Uh, I could not and cannot still uh, figure out math. What happened in my house was I had a father who was brilliant at math, (laughs) a father with a degree in engineering and another degree in business, uh, and a son who couldn't figure out basic algebra. It's not a good mix, except that my dad is incredibly patient. And I remember afternoons around the dining room table with my dad struggling to understand, not math, (laughs) struggling to understand the simple math that I couldn't understand, and patiently walking through afternoon after afternoon. And it was as if the more frustrated I got, the more patient he got. (laughs) Something I wish that I would have over my own children. I remember not the math, quite frankly, (laughs) but I remember the patience of my father. And I wonder one day later in the disciples' life if they went back and thought of that day on the Sea of Galilee where they were arguing about bread, who knows why. And what they remember that day is the patience of Jesus, the patience of Christ to walk with them, to wait for them, to tell them the same warning again and again and again. You see, Jesus is dealing with men, if we could expand that, men and women and children who are, as he describes, those of little faith. What do we expect our God to do with people of little faith. Well, he does not crush us. In fact, we see in these verses, he ever so patiently strengthens our weak faith. That's actually what I want you to see in these verses, how Jesus patiently strengthens our weak faith, their weak faith, and in turn, our weak faith. What is their weakness? Well, it's certainly not Algebra or geometry, right? What is the weakness the disciples face in these verses? Is this, it is this. They, and we as well, are vulnerable to bad teaching. They are vulnerable, as are we, to bad teaching. I'm getting ahead of my point. We'll come to this in a moment. But to just speed ahead, you see that the, the real leaven they should worry about is false teaching. But false teaching that is like leaven which is like yeast, just a little bit, and a whole lot of flour goes a long way. It looks like flour. It intermingles with the flour. It is bad teaching. It is false teaching that is subversive. It is like leaven, a little bit mixing in, and it affects the whole lump. I want you to see in our text this morning that we are vulnerable to subversive teaching, That means that we can be easily persuaded. We can be quickly distracted, right? We can be dangerously led away from the simple path of faith. And Jesus 
ever so patiently strengthens our weak faith against this threat of false teaching, bad teaching, subversive teaching. As we work through these these two accounts, I want to look at three elements of this teaching. Three elements of subversive teaching. First, I want to show you where it begins. It begins, subversive teaching begins with spiritual defiance. We said in verses 1 to 4, spiritual defiance. Here we don't have the disciples defying Jesus, but we do have the Pharisees and the Sadducees showing us spiritual defiance that has the danger, like leaven, of spreading and influencing the disciples. Jesus has returned to the region of Galilee, and Matthew records it for us almost as if the moment his foot hits the shore, getting off the boat, there's a crowd waiting for him. And it's a crowd led by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These are two groups of leaders in the Jewish tradition of the day, and they usually didn't work together. They usually saved up their arguments for one another. So if Jesus is facing both of them, he is facing a unified resistance to his claim to be the Messiah. We've seen this in Matthew's gospel. It's getting stronger and stronger. The resistance against Jesus, the the hard-heartedness among Israel is growing stronger. Jesus, we're going to see after he talks to them, he gets back in the boat and he goes back to the other side of the sea. We're going to see next week, he's up in the northern region. This is the final withdrawal of Jesus. This is a pattern we've seen. He is confronted by the religious leaders of his day, and he withdraws. He doesn't retreat. He withdraws until the right time. Then he comes back, opposition withdraws. This happens two, three, four times. Finally, he's going to head to Jerusalem, and that's going to be it. Matthew's going to get a lot more intense starting next week as he sets his face to Jerusalem. Here he's facing the initial wall of resistance, Pharisees and Sadducees. How do we know it's a wall of resistance? Well, look what Matthew tells us. Why did they come out there? Why are they there? They're there to test him. This is not a good test, right? This is not a test that they're hoping Jesus passes. The, The idea of a test here is a trap that's designed for him to fail. It is a trap through which they hope to discredit Jesus. They're not out there asking genuine, authentic questions about who he is. They have made up their mind about who he is, and they want to set up a test so that he will fail, and their point, their view, what they're proclaiming will prove to be true. What is the test like? The test test is they ask him to show them a sign from heaven. What they mean is right then and there, Jesus does something miraculous— an on-demand miracle in order to confirm his teaching. Now, if you've noticed this, Jesus' miracles, they, they have a purpose. He's not walking around just sort of a carnival, right, doing all these cool tricks and sideshows, right? Uh, why does he feed 4,000 people? Because they're starving. <laughs> why does he heal the woman? Because her daughter, the woman's daughter, because she's oppressed. Why does he walk on water? He's going out and he's saving Peter out of the water. Why does he feed the 5,000? Because they're hungry, on and on and on. And yet, the Pharisees and Sadducees want more. They want Jesus on their own terms. They want to set the terms for who this Jesus is that they will believe. Maybe 
parents, you remember that struggle with your children at the grocery store and you're going through the checkout aisle and what do they put all along the checkout aisle, right? All the candy that your kids want. And the child looks at mom and says, mom, if you love me, you'd buy me some candy. <laughs> Moms do not give in to that. Just a little parenting nugget for you. <laughs> Don't give in to that blackmail, right? Jesus is being challenged by the Pharisees and Sadducees, if you're God, show us a trick, right? Do a little miracle for us, Jesus. He responds to this request, we might call it, calling them out. Look at what he says in verse 2. When it's evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today. For the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky. So this is at their, you know, in in their particular place and culture, a red sky at different times of the day meant something was going to happen. And maybe they weren't as as good at reading the signs like our Asheville weathermen were last night, right? (laughs) About reading the signs that were to come. They pride themselves, and Jesus is calling them out because they have an ability to read physical signs. But they can't read the spiritual sign. They can read the physical sign. They can tell you when it's going to rain and when the rain's going to stop, when it's going to be dry. But they have the Messiah of God right in front of them, and they're blind. This isn't reading the signs of the time like the second returning of Jesus. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about when he's going to come back. He's saying he's here right now. And they're looking at the sky and they can tell you what the weather's going to happen, but they don't see God before their very eyes. Jesus tells them you cannot interpret the signs. That's a reason he won't give them signs. But then he tells them why they cannot interpret the signs. It's because they refuse to interpret the signs. The problem is not that Jesus is performing random and obscure miracles that we don't know what they mean, right? We have already seen his past few miracles, what happens after he performs them, worship. People glorify him. They see who he is. No, the answer is not obscure signs. The answer is not that the Pharisees and Sadducees are a little bit slower to pick up on the signs, that Jesus needs to do a better job of showing them who he is. The answer is in verse 4. Jesus says, you're an evil and adulterous generation. The problem's not the signs. The problem is not what they can see or can't see. The problem is they don't want to see the signs. To call Jewish people in that day adulterous was to accuse them of worshiping another god. They're in covenant relationship with their God, to be adulterous is to have broken that relationship and to worship another God. The word for that is idolatry. If you were in Sunday school this morning, you heard the quote from John chapter 3, people love the darkness rather than the light. That's, what, that's what's going on here. They love the darkness. Their request of Jesus is not neutral. It comes from a rebellious heart. Rebels do not ask innocent questions. They're not asking Jesus for some help that they might believe in him. They already don't believe in him. And now they're just trying to trick him with a spiritual sounding question. He tells them, 
calls them an evil and adulterous generation because they're seeking for a sign when they've had all these signs in front of them and they still don't believe. He says, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Now that verse we've already read before in chapter 12, verse 39. It's the exact same verse. The same accusation, evil and adultery. Uh, The same limit of the sign given uh, to the sign uh, of Jonah. Sign of Jonah is easy for us to understand. Jonah in the belly of the whale, three days, comes back to life. Jesus in the belly of the earth, three days, will come back to life. To say that they're only going to get the sign of Jonah is to say you're going to get the greatest sign ever. (laughs) You're going to get the resurrection from the dead. And just as with Jonah's resurrection, we might call it, from the whale, as that proved his teaching, his warnings, his message to Nineveh was true and authentic. So does Jesus' resurrection give authenticity to the rest of his ministry, to the, to the rest of his words. But we understand that our Lord gives his accusers and us this greatest of signs. If we miss the the, the, the multiplication of the bread, if we miss the walking on water, if we miss the healing of the, the Canaanite woman's daughter, we cannot miss the resurrection from the dead. That our Lord truly died. That he actually went into the grave. That he, he, he was under the power of death for those three days. And then in the mighty power of God, life was breathed back into him. And he rose from the dead never to die Again, even in the face of that great sign, those who are spiritually defiant will hate it, will refuse to believe it, will love the darkness rather than the light. What is spiritual defiance? It's something that looks spiritual, but it's just a cover for unbelief. And I wonder if there's any of you here this morning And that defines you. I mean, you're at church, so you've checked the box of looking spiritual, right? I mean, you're here. But is it just a cover for your defiance? Is it a cover for your rebellion? Is it a cover for your hatred? Is it a cover for your apathy or your unbelief? Do you look spiritual and ask questions like looking for a sign and it's really nothing but an accusation in your own heart? Are you actually listening to the words of Jesus this morning? Or do you just want other people around you to think it looks like you're listening? Jesus calls us to examine our hearts. Because though the church may be dismissed and preachers may be dismissed, the son of God and judge of the universe will not be dismissed. He will not be ignored. Spiritual Defiance is the seedbed for subversive teaching that comes and tempts us all. It seems like this type of defiance should be easy to recognize, right? Well, we see secondly in our text that that subversive teaching grows in spiritual dullness. Where does it grow? It grows amongst spiritually dull people. You note at the end of verse 4, uh, he, he left, and left them and departed. So we turn over to chapter, uh, verse 5 uh, to 11. 
And we see they have reached the other side. They've taken a boat to the side. They've gotten in a boat, gone to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And this conversation uh, in the boat, I don't know if you caught it. It's hilarious, right? That Jesus is riding with these guys and they're obsessed over how much food they have. And he's trying to teach them an incredibly important spiritual lesson. And all they're thinking of is, we don't have enough food, Jesus. <laughs> Where's the bread? We forgot the bread again, all right? I mean, that could, be the, that could be the narrative for these guys. They never have enough food anywhere they go. Jesus tries to bring them to awareness of the spiritual danger that they are in hearing the words of these Pharisees and Sadducees. You note, he tells them, uh, they note, verse 5, they're low on food. They've forgotten to bring any bread. Uh, he uses this opportunity to bring up the topic of leaven. He says, watch and beware of the leaven. That, that's yeast, right? It's a, it is a, a metaphor from bread. The, the yeast, the leaven of the Pharisees. And they begin discussing, saying, we brought no bread. <laughs> Jesus is in the middle of a great theological lesson. And all they care about is their rumbling stomachs. Jesus responds, verse 8. You have little faith. And then he reels off a bunch of rhetorical questions. Five of them, if you're counting rhetorical questions that show us why Jesus says they are those of little faith or why I'm using the word dull, spiritual dullness to describe them. They miss the point at two levels here, right? First, they miss the point about Jesus's power in verses nine to 10, right? They're worried about bread, and somehow they've forgotten that the guy in the boat with them has fed thousands of people with almost no bread two different times. He can feed them again. Look what he says. Have you forgotten? Do you not remember the five loaves of the 5,000 or the seven loaves for the four? How can you still be with me and still be worried about bread? He gives bread in all circumstances, in any circumstance, because he is God. Before we laugh or snicker or judge the disciples, we're honest with ourselves. This is how we look when we're so consumed with earthly cares, isn't it? This is how we look when we think, well, the, the, the tax return hasn't come in yet. Right? The, that health report from the doc is going to be worse than we thought. I just don't know if we're going to be okay this time around. Right? And on and on and on. We... We're consumed with worry and we forget who God is to us, who, are, who God is for us. Listen to the words of Jesus that are so familiar to you from chapter 6. He says, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. There's a lesson here for us and how the disciples are dull to the power of Jesus. The real point, though, is not that they're dull to his power. It's that they're dull to his teaching. They're unaware that he is not talking to them about bread. He's talking to them. He's using a metaphor, right? Leaven is something that is little, but it goes a long way. There's a little bit of leaven and a lot of flour. It goes a long way. It has a much bigger effect than just a little bit of it. This is a metaphor for good. We saw in the 
The kingdom in chapter 13, a small kingdom, still grows and influences the world around it. It's also a metaphor for evil. 1 Corinthians 6, a little leaven, a little unbelief and rebellion in the membership of the church has an effect on the entire church. The Pharisees and Sadducees have a disastrous effect on the spiritual life of those around them. Just a little bit of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Just a little bit of that false teaching goes a long way. It's a scary thought, isn't it? If we're like the disciples, if we're dull of hearing like them, and if we just need just a little bit of false teaching and that little leaven affects the whole lump, how can we be, wake up to this? How can we escape the spiritual dullness that we're honest plagues so many of us? I mean, how often have you missed the Bible truth that's right in front of your face? How often does it take you weeks, days, months, years to learn a lesson that God is teaching you? How do we wake up to this? I want to show you finally in the end of these verses that this subversive teaching, it may be born in the evil hearts of the Pharisees. It may grow in spiritual dullness, but it dies through spiritual discipleship. It dies in spiritual discipleship. We see this in the last two verses, second half, verse 11 to verse 12. Jesus is discipling his disciples, right? He is leading them to trust him, to believe in him, to know his truth, to follow him, to put to death the lies of the world and take up their cross and follow after Jesus. He is raising them up just as he does with every one of his children. He disciples us in the faith. Look how he ends this series of rhetorical questions at the end of verse 11. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees And the Sadducees, do you note that he's already said that? You see the persistence of Jesus, right? If these were my disciples, I think I would be done with them, right? It's like my dad should have been done with me stubbornly refusing to understand math. Jesus is patient with his disciples. They will learn this lesson. He tells it to them up in what, verse Six, they don't understand. He teaches it to them. And then he tells them again in verse 11. And they do understand. That's that idea of understanding we saw back in Nehemiah. They go under the discipleship of Jesus from people of little faith in verse 8 to people who understand in verse 12. Now they get it. Only because Jesus is persistent and patient with them. What do they get? What do they finally understand? What are they finally aware of Jesus warning them about? Oh, verse 12. He's not telling us of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of Pharisees. So you see the one-to-one correlation. As leaven is to bread, so is teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. A little bad teaching goes a long way. Now, what is so bad about their teaching? Go back to it in verse 1. They are demanding signs. And their demanding of signs from Jesus reveals that they don't have any faith. That they are not aiming to trust in Jesus. They are aiming to control Jesus. They are aiming to have Jesus on their terms. Their words sound religious and spiritual. It sounds good to want a sign, right? But it is manipulative. It is demanding. It is faithless. And a little bit 
of that spiritually sounding language that's merely a cover for a lack of faith has a disastrous effect amongst the people of God. Let me put it another way. What's most dangerous for us is the stuff that sounds really, really like the Bible, right? (laughs) Most of us can spot heresy that exactly defies what the Bible teaches. We're not as good as that teaching that's really close, but ultimately subverts everything. That's what Jesus is calling us to be aware of. That's the big takeaway. That is the big application that Jesus would have for his disciples and for us to beware of this type of teaching. Let me give you just a couple ways before we close to be aware. I'm going to give you two complicated ones and one really simple one. (laughs) How do we beware of subversive teaching? Number one, don't underestimate their capacity for deception. Don't underestimate the enemies of God's capacity and ability to deceive. I'm telling you, do not take evil lightly. When Luke tells this same account, he describes leaven with the word hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. The world is full of deceptive messages. And sad to say, much of it is aimed at the people of God. I just saw this little video last week on social media. I won't tell you what platform, these, these little short videos, they're all over the place now. And it was a biblical scholar or somebody who had the the titles that went with a biblical scholar, denying what the Bible taught, but in a way that was incredibly persuasive. He was quoting Hebrew. He was quoting Greek. He had all the titles below his name. The video was professionally produced. It was wham, bam, 60 seconds. And like you could see anybody converted in a moment away from Christ. This world is full of deceivers. This world, Our enemy is working through deceivers to attack and deceive the church. Do not, as the people of God, underestimate the capacity of our enemy to deceive. The flip side of that, the second way we should beware of subversive teaching, is don't overestimate your capacity for discernment. Don't overestimate your capacity, church. And if there's a mirror, I'm putting it in myself. Your own capacity for discernment. Right? We, all, we want a church full of Bereans. Acts 17 that, that, that turns to the scripture, that study the scripture, that evaluate the teaching that we hear. But if we think the greatest filter we have is our own brilliance to, dis, to determine false teaching, we are in for a world of hurt. I think the first sign that you are spiritually dull is refusing to think that you could actually be spiritually dull. Take heed lest you fall. The wisest man in scripture, Solomon, was turned away from the Lord by his wives. We need wisdom. We need help. We need the church. We need one another. We need our session and our presbytery. We need our denomination. We need the saints throughout church history. It's one reason the confessions of faith that we cite weren't written yesterday. (laughs) They've stood the test of time through hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, We need the cloud of witnesses around us. We need wise counselors speaking God's truth to us. 
We need to faithfully place ourselves under biblical teaching and preaching lest we go astray. Don't overestimate your capacity for discernment. Let me give you the final one. This is the easy one, just one word. Believe Jesus. (laughs) Do you notice what are the Pharisees doing wrong? They are essentially not believing, right? They're asking for something because they don't believe. They're not believing. So Jesus says, beware of not believing. Or we could rephrase it in saying, don't, don't believe. So he's telling his, his disciples, don't, don't believe, which take off those two words, believe. He is inviting them and us to a simplicity of faith. We don't need a bunch of signs. We don't need a bunch of stuff. We don't need a bunch of a fanfare. We have the greatest sign imaginable, the sign of Jonah, the resurrection of our Savior from the dead. And we beware by believing, by trusting in Christ, by men and women of little faith who take that little faith and place it in Jesus. You, brother and sister, take your little faith today and place it in Jesus. He is the good and better Jonah who rose not from the whale but from the dead itself. He is the provider of bread from heaven, not only physical bread, but the bread of life. He is the Christ, the son of the living God. Believe in him and you will be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know the rebellious spirits of our hearts. You know how hard it is at times for us to believe. Lord, you know our vulnerability. You know where we are susceptible. You know how easily we go astray. I pray, God, you would protect us as the shepherd protects his flock. Keep those deceptive videos off of our social media feeds this week. Keep that unwise counsel from a friend uh, or a so-called friend out of our ears. Lord, give us protection from the outside, but also strengthen our hearts to believe. Strengthen our dependence upon your word. Strengthen our filter and our our discernment by trusting in you and in you alone. Lord, give us confidence in our church and our theology and our our leaders and the cloud of witnesses around us. But ultimately, oh God, give us faith and confidence in you and in your son and him alone. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.